Hi, everyone, and welcome to Radio Cloud Native from Brantis, where we break down the week's news on Kubernetes, the cloud native ecosystem, open source, and the wider world of tech. I'm Eric Gregory. And I'm John Janeshade. This week, we're taking a look at growth in VM deployments, the breach at Circle CI, a new wave of attacks on Kubernetes clusters, the latest developments with ChatGPT, and more. Drama-filled week. Uh, but first, a programming note. Starting this week, we're going to shift to a bi-weekly release schedule. And that's the only real change, but it should help this small team ensure that we can give you the best possible show every episode. So our next live recording will be Wednesday, January 25th, 2023, and we'll continue on every other week from there. So <clears throat> we'll start today with some Mirantis news, but this isn't just shameless self-promotion. There are some interesting suggestions of industry trends here as well. Uh, along with Mirantis' latest release of uh, its OpenStack for Kubernetes, which brings support for OpenStack Yoga, the company also released some data on deployment patterns, noting that we've seen 10 times more virtual machines deployed on our infrastructure than in the previous year. That fits with what the Open Infra Foundation and others are seeing. Allison Price, the foundation's director of marketing and community, says the growth of Mosk closely mirrors what we're seeing in OpenStack growth overall. Organizations are increasingly using OpenStack to deploy robust and scalable virtualization infrastructure on-premises, a trend that's reflected in the 2022 user survey, which revealed more than 40 million cores of OpenStack in production worldwide. Turning to security, it was another banner week. Shortly after recording on our last episode, CircleCI issued a security alert disclosing that they were investigating a security incident and that out of an abundance of caution, users should, quote, immediately rotate any and all secrets stored in CircleCI, unquote, as well as review internal logs for anything fishy. In the following days, they went on to automatically rotate all customers' GitHub OAuth tokens while Bitbucket OAuth was expired and GitLab users were recommended to rotate everything manually. CircleCI hasn't been super chatty about exactly what happened, though you can read between the lines. The original incident report stated that, quote, at this point, we are confident that there are no unauthorized actors active in our systems, unquote. It goes on to suggest that customers review internal logs from December 21st through January 4th. So you can kind of do the math there. Uh, an unauthorized actor probably was active in the systems, and maybe possibly there was some overlap with the holiday season. If you're a CircleCI user and you just got back from vacation and you're going, ah, you should probably <laughs> run and rotate all the things and then head over to CircleCI.com slash blog to read more. That'll teach you to go to Miami for Christmas, right? <laughs> um, continuing in this, in this vein of fear and torment from the little Bobby Tables files, JavaScript security folks are by now very well aware of the threat of so-called prototype pollution, which is an attack that leverages unsanitized inputs combined with deep copy or extend functions uh, to redefine and extend base object prototypes shared by all objects, which are all mutable in JavaScript, effectively injecting functionality into all derived classes for triggering by hapless applications, la-di-da. <laughs> uh, examples have been published that use prototype pollution virginal service, mostly crashing Node.js servers, cross-site scripting, and other kinds of malice. Um, and this is a very flexible technique once you get in the door, so who knows what's possible. The security community, meanwhile, has done good work over the past couple of years uh, identifying and listing popular components and frameworks that exhibit potential for prototype pollution uh, and you know, encouraging people to update them and sanitize their user inputs better. But, say some experts, much more work still needs to be done here in basic awareness, in hardening, and in training developers and best practices to shut down this vector more or less once and for all. 
probably impossible since um, actually sanitizing user inputs in the real world is very difficult. Recently, however, uh, a security researcher named Abdul Rahim Khalid has published work identifying a somewhat similar vulnerability in Python. Despite that language not presenting the same way as JavaScript, Python-based objects are immutable. He calls it class pollution, and uh, as in JavaScript, it depends on finding and exploiting an entry point where user-controllable input is <coughs> insufficiently sanitized before using it to set attributes of objects created by a program. While the attacker can't change Python's base classes, where functions that accept inputs use uh, uh, base classes, I'm sorry, where functions that accept inputs use recursive deep copy and similar functionalities to merge them, it's possible to access parent classes, global variables, and other sensitive and useful stuff by this method. Collet summarized ways the attack could potentially be used to subvert Seth and Russian, uh, Seth, no, try to say this three times fast, subvert <laughs> session authentication in Flask apps, mess with Jinja templates in scary ways, and execute remote commands. As XKCD reminds us, sanitize your user inputs and semicolon drop table students semicolon is not a real middle name. <laughs> well, uh, alas, the security woes don't end there either. Microsoft security researchers reported new attack patterns from the Kensing crypto mining malware, which they've observed targeting Kubernetes clusters and container environments. The malware has historically been used to attack Linux environments. So the, the new jump to container images is more of a short hop than a giant leap. Some common vulnerable images include PHP unit, LifeRay, WebLogic, and WordPress. Particularly frequently, these attacks are targeting misconfigured uh, Postgres. If Postgres uses the trust authentication setting, anyone who can connect to the database server can log in freely. You can use trust authentication with a limited range of acceptable IPs, but a lot of instances don't, so that can enable an attacker to get into the database, and from there they can potentially execute code or make other use of the contents and escalate their access within the cluster. If you want to check your work on Postgres security, head over to the project security page at www.postgresql.org slash docs slash 7.0 slash security.htm, and we'll toss that link in the chat. For other vulnerable images, the report makes the following recommendations. Quote, the first thing to note when deploying an image to the container is that it is an image from a known registry, and it's patched with the latest revision. Also, scan all images for vulnerabilities to identify which ones are vulnerable and what the vulnerabilities are, especially the ones that are used in exposed containers. It's also possible to mitigate the risk by minimizing access to the container, assigning access to specific IPs, and applying the least privileges rule to the user, unquote. So a lot of the standard advice that uh, we, we tend to talk about for secure software supply chain. If you want to read the... Oh, John. I just... I was just Googling something to remind myself, PHP unit is a unit testing framework, right? That so, sounds right. So who uses those in publicly accessible Kubernetes clusters? That's a good question. I mean, is that a good, is that a good target for crypto mining, which wants scale and... I think frequently you have uh, misconfigured and therefore improperly exposed clusters. Uh, Dev clusters. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Well, so much for people who try to do test-driven development with the best role in the world. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> anyway. uh, if you want to read the full security report, you can find that under the title Initial Access Techniques in Kubernetes Environments Used by Kenzing Malware. This story and clearly this is a theme and we've returned to it again and again in prior weeks <laughs> um, 
with all the news about supply chain vulnerabilities, we're clearly seeing more stories that give us the opportunity to make superficial you know, jokes about Docker containers versus shipping containers. On Christmas Day, the port of Lisbon was hit by a ransomware attack by the Lockbit cartel, more of, of whom we will hear later, involving bulk data exfiltration of financial reports, audits, budgets, contracts, ships logs, and other valuable information, potentially usable. I mean, think about the value of this data, potentially usable for anything from market manipulation to targeting terrorist attacks. Shipping, logistics data, we're talking big money, big motion, you know, before things hit markets, time critical stuff. It's uh, it's quite a treasure trove and it needs to be protected, clearly. Now the Norwegian uh, SaaS and application software provider DNV has apparently been hit by a new attack that's made them take their online service offline since the 7th of January. The on-ship components of their ship manager, marine fleet management and ship management system are still working uh, and uh, can be used uh, safely, apparently. But uh, the centralized uh, services are offline. This is software and associated services used by uh, about 300 customers on roughly 7,000 vessels. So a big deal. And its various modules help with planned planned maintenance safety management systems, crew management, repair, hull integrity management, shipping procurement, and provide data analytics. This, I suppose, is the SaaS part, enabling ship owners to run lean while remaining safe and compliant with the numerous regulatory regimes under which they operate. Taking that stuff offline is probably costing, you know, people millions and millions of dollars in accumulating inefficiencies uh, and reversion to manual systems, wouldn't you think? Wow, yeah. Um both a deeply consequential story and, as you say, one that's just kind of like the golden it's goose vaguely for, meta. For, for graphics with shipping containers on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so a, many whales and containers, yeah. Well, uh, moving over to uh, a language story, Ruby reached version 3.2.0 with notable new features, including an early experimental WebAssembly compiler and a mature production-ready version of the YJIT compiler for Ruby itself. Happy to be able to talk about Ruby. I looked back uh, through our, our records, and I don't think we've done so in a serious way for about six months. Uh, the YJIT, which stands for Yet Another Just-In-Time Compiler, has been available as an experimental feature for a year and has not only proven stable, but provided performance increases of around 40% over the Ruby interpreter. Since it's written in Rust, you need the Rust compiler to build CRuby with YJIT. How many times can I say compiler in this story? We'll see. The other big feature is the WebAssembly compiler, which should help facilitate Ruby apps at the edge or in the web browser. And in fact, the language's official TryRuby learning sandbox is now implemented with WebAssembly. Pretty cool. As a side note, on January 24th, I'm going to be doing a tech talk about running WebAssembly apps on Kubernetes using Wasmedge. You can sign up for that by heading to morantis.com slash labs. Uh, and we'll also drop the full link in the chat in the podcast description. Wild. I'm really looking forward to this, Eric. I'm excited. Um, now, stepping back from, you know, security and language development news, we have bad corporation news. <clears throat> um, in late October of last year, news began percolating back from many tech forward precincts, notably from top universities that graduate a lot of software engineers, that faced with economic headwinds, Meta, formerly Facebook, was suddenly rescinding paid stipended internship and contract to full-time offers, um, mostly out of its London engineering hub. Uh, obviously, students everywhere, 
presented with such opportunities were sad about this as dreams of moving to the UK and working for a top tier tech company suddenly evaporated. But Meta stated at the time that full-time offers would not be impacted. That would be highly unusual. Well, apparently this week, it emerged that London Meta was indeed taking back signed full-time employment offers to new graduates due to start in February, something the company has never done before. Um, so far, no word has emerged about compensatory payments or alignment with UK labor law in this matter. Um, uh, but that said, rescinding offers is serious business with large impacts on people's lives, careers, and budgets. Folks have turned down other offers. Some may be in mid-move. Um, yes, in many cases, new grads aren't maybe as vulnerable as older folks with dependents might be, but who knows? And still, recruiters, meanwhile, are sharing uh, the opinion, uh, Twitter is alive with the buzz here, that uh, that this will hurt Meta's ability to hire in affected markets potentially for years to come. Um, you know, them's impacted by such things do not, uh, you know, quickly forget. Yeah. Moving on to uh, another, I suppose, uh, big tech story in a way. Uh, we've been talking as has everyone for a few weeks about chat GPT. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've talked about how it can write some truly impressive text and also uh, how there are sometimes quibbles with uh, some of its, it's not so much stylistic flourishes as perhaps uh, factual inaccuracies. Um, and it's become so popular that about 50% of the time now, if you try and use it, you may get the message that it's too busy right now and they're trying to expand capacity. And it's not a surprise that they're trying to limit capacity because every query costs OpenAI a few cents in computing power. And as popular as the services become, you can imagine how much money they're spending. And since they're running on Azure, most of that's going to Microsoft. So Microsoft has taken notice, and now they're planning on spending $10 billion to acquire a 49% stake in OpenAI, which, by the way, also owns the Dolly image generator. It's Kind of a strange deal because according to semaphore.com, which uh, sort of initially reported the, the rumors of this deal, until Microsoft recoups their investment, they will receive 75% of OpenAI's profits. Once they've reached that threshold, Microsoft will go back to its 49% share. The other venture capital investors will get their 49% share and nonprofit OpenAI, uh, the, the nonprofit sort of section of the decidedly now no longer nonprofit business, um, <laughs> will get the remaining 2%. Of course, as OpenAI hasn't actually figured out a profit model, there's no telling how or when that's going to happen. It's, it's an interesting space right now, isn't it? With uh, this dominating world conversation, uh, I suppose, you know, largely as a function of having put it out there very expensively uh, for, for free and open use, uh, but the, the monetization still being up in the air. Um, there's, there's a lot of money to be made, but uh, uh, folks are kind of working out the logistics of that. Meanwhile, I I went to ChatGPT <laughs> to ask its opinion about, you know, being acquired in part by Microsoft. And it is, as you promised, offline. <laughs> <laughs> but but they've done a very amusing thing. They're posting um they're they're posting um radio ads and acrostic puzzles and other things that deliver their we're down right now, please check back later message. Um <laughs> You know, with the with the usual in the style of Shakespeare, kind of uh, you know, fun with Chat GPT, you know, uh, 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 you know, stylistic quirks and uh, and uh, and mysteries. <laughs> uh, so, as we and as others have been playing around with Chat GPT, uh, you know, there have been a lot of stories uh, and and anecdotes of okay, here's an interesting 
wild factual inaccuracy couched in otherwise kind of elegant uh, and and true or plausible information, right? Uh, and uh, Wolfram Alpha had an interesting blog post about this, which both seem to kind of try to position themselves adjacent to this this uh, you know world dominating story, but but also I thought added some some uh, useful thoughts. So Wolfram Alpha uses a more API based model that lets you ask more specific questions and more importantly computes facts and other answers more scientifically. Uh, and uh, in their blog post about sort of how these two technologies might be used. Together, they talked a bit about how you can train ChatGPT with with proper answers to questions, kind of live, uh, not just in uh, you know the, the the formal training that any machine learning is going to go through, but um, just in the moment. So, um, in this post, uh, Stephen Wolfram asks, "How far is it from Chicago to Tokyo?" The distance from uh, and the ChatGPT initially gets the question wrong. Uh, then he reasks the question, says the distance uh, from the center of Chicago, Illinois, to the center of Tokyo is about 6,313 miles after having grabbed this information from uh, Wolfram Alpha. And ChatGPT says, thank you for correcting me. You're correct that the distance from the center of Chicago, Illinois to the center of Tokyo, Japan is about 6,313 miles. Uh, this distance can vary slightly depending on the specific location within each city that is being used as the starting and ending point. Then he re-asks the question, how far is it from Chicago to Tokyo and gets the correct answer. Uh, and he's making a case for connecting ChatGPT and Wolfram Alpha using natural language, uh, which I found kind of fascinating. Almost the idea of like a natural language API uh, for for connectivity between these two systems. Um, Actually, that is a heck of a that is a heck of a thing to imagine. Have you used Wolfram Alpha? Alpha? A little bit, but it's been many. many <clears throat> yeah, years years ago, I went nuts with it for a while. I I spent a lot of money on it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And and it helped uh, get my kids through advanced math in 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 junior high and high school. Um, it, it it is quite amazing. I mean, for its for its time, it really felt like a mystical experience, not unlike Jack, Chat G, GPT using that system, and then with its theorem proving logic and you know its ability to explain proofs and and uh, you know do directed inquiry mathematically. Um, it it really kind of showed me the future. I'm not exactly sure why my first impulse on seeing ChatGPT in its present form was not to go, wow, it's like Wolfram Alpha, but factually looser and, you know, and, and more kind of uh, janky with the logic, and, you know, and, and, you know, rhetorical rules. Um, thinking about these two things together, their improving ability and you know and and uh, you know directed mathematical proof finding and 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 that stuff with a, a true natural language interface is you know that is a very powerful idea they're not wrong i i you know yeah i think they got something here i agree uh, there's something I think much more compelling about that to me. Uh, all, all of these pieces are, are very impressive of course uh, but putting that natural language layer on top of something that is actually Probably rigorous, to, yeah. actually designed to deliver, you know, rigorous information, uh, uh, you know, testing for, for accuracy that starts to get really powerful mm -hmm. uh, in a way that I think 
just kind of demonstrating stylistic fluency as technically difficult and impressive as that is, as, as many, uh, uh, cloud hours and dollars as that consumes. Um, it, it's really when you pair those two, I think that you start to get something yeah. a, a little mind blowing, at least to me. Pretty wild. All right. So this week we will wrap up with the wackadoodle news quiz, our recurring though irregular segment where we quiz one another on recent news that is particularly surprising, absurd, or just kind of reminds us that we live in a really weird world. Uh, so this week I'm going to be uh, posing two questions to John. Uh, and my first here, uh, calling back to one of our previous stories, according to the Canadian press, ransomware group Lockbit, which we talked about a little bit before, issued an apology to a victim recently and offered them a decryptor to regain access to their ransomed data. Why did they apologize? My completely uninformed wild guess is that the organization was a legitimate not-for-profit or other inappropriate victim. And the big ransomware orgs have proven that they are really only interested in robbing from the rich and not from, you know, organizations that are in some sense serving the, you know, the, 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 the people or the global common wheel or, you know, the climate or, you know, other important things that the rest of us care about. Um, is that anywhere near? Yeah, I'd say that's, I'd say that is largely correct. Like uh, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> um, so the victim in this case was Toronto's hospital for sick children. Uh, there you go. And for context here, Lockbit is a major, major ransomware operator, as we've seen, uh, responsible according to U.S. estimates for over $100 million in ransom demands. But they disavowed this attack on the Children's Hospital, which slowed down lab results and treatments. They alleged that the attack was conducted by a partner using their software. So these these things tend to operate in a kind of multi-level marketing way. Uh, <laughs> <A> partner. <laughs> and they say that they've discontinued work with that particular partner. Um, they offered the free decryptor uh, to the hospital, but the last at last report, the hospital was sort of evaluating whether they thought that was wise to use. Um, and they'd already kind of mostly, uh, to the extent that they could, recovered Restored from much backups. of the damage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, it brings up the uh, a kind of wild thought about like uh, almost marketing for for these kinds of organizations, right? Or, or public relations for these kinds of organizations, anyway. Where um, even in this dark webby sort of world, <laughs> there's a certain image that they need to maintain. Well, um, and and of course, it's the same as Google's old motto, right? Don't don't be evil. <laughs> Yeah, it's the modulated version of don't be don't be really really evil. <laughs> well, next one uh, this week, security researchers disclosed a vulnerability in what smart device? Um, I, Fitbits. It was, uh, in fact, this week California's no. digital license plates. <laughs> As these are produced by a company called Reviver, and according to Jalopnik, the car website, security researchers were able to escalate privileges through insecure JavaScript on the company's website and access GPS location and user data via API calls. Reviver disclosed the vulnerability on their website after patching it, of course, and says that it was not used by any malicious actors. Uh, Digital license plates. Yeah, they use e-ink, so it's, it's just like duct tape and a Kindle. <laughs> to the back of your car and seriously <laughs> um, and it's uh connected uh, and I, I 
believe if it's stolen, you can uh, change the license plate to say stolen. Uh, right. What a I I cannot begin to to I mean I can, but it would take forty five <laughs> minutes just to bullet point the list of the things that could go wrong with a digital license plate system. Funny though. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes, it could. Many of them are funny. So I tried hacking my my um, my partner's um, digital license plate in order to um, propose to her. Um, and now she's in jail. <laughs> for, yeah. right. and, the, and the engagement will not happen. Um, yeah, Just a no, little, a little short, uh, near science fiction, near future science fiction. Story. So many black mirror stories can come from this. We should write some. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that does us for today. Any, uh, last thoughts, John? None, you know, except, uh, I, I definitely want some digital license plates now, <laughs> I, you know, gotta have one. Well, thanks uh, first to you, John, for uh, joining me today. Thanks to Nika for the production of Magic, as always, and to Lewis and DJ for social and video. Thanks to all of you all for joining, and we will see you, remember, in two weeks. <laughs>